Welcome to Empower Humans. Welcome again to the Empower Humans podcast. This is episode 136, my friends. I want to let you know we have an amazing interview today. Nikita Thigpen brought all kinds of amazing value and uh, tidbits and uh, you know, kind of tip of the iceberg stuff for a real depth of what she uh, does. Thigpro.com, by the way, T-H-I-G-P-R-O.com. Uh, she also has the Thigpro Balance and Relationship Management Institute. And we talked all about all of that and uh, some background with trauma. Uh, you know, she was a clinician and worked with people who'd gone through various forms of trauma. And we talked about the various ways people handle those things. We talked about relationships in depth towards the end of the podcast. Um, especially like the last 15, 20 minutes, uh, we had some real in-depth talk about relationships and just, you know, the components of it. I'm not going to talk your head off here. Just real quick, our reminders, uh, you are absolutely priceless. You are above the monetary systems. And I say that a lot recently, but what that means is you're without price. That's what priceless literally means if we break down the etymology of the word. Uh, so keep that in mind as we as we talk here always and throughout your life as you experience other people and things and jobs. And I know a lot of people are going through all kinds of things right now. It's not easy. Uh, just remember, through it all, you are still absolutely priceless. And, and what that all means, it, it means potential. It means value. It means all kinds of uh, great things that we can do and be and have. Uh, no matter where we may have stumbled or other things in or out of our control in our lives, you are still priceless through it all. And, of course, along with that, and, and in light of the fact that so many are going through so many difficult things, you are not alone. Keep that in mind as well. You can reach out. Reach out to the friends, family, neighbors, uh, co-workers, uh, the people in your world. You'll be surprised how much, you know, I talk to a lot of people lately, not just on the podcast, a lot of people. And uh, so many people want to help other people. And you'd be surprised, you know, whatever you're going through, you may be the one who's always there to help other people. But once in a while, you may need help. And that's okay. And it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's nothing to hide from. Uh, so be the one who needs help. You know, Nikita talks about the importance of being, quote unquote, selfish. Uh, take care of yourself within certain boundaries where we don't violate the other important areas of our lives. But be selfish. Take care of yourself. Reach out. Info at EmpowerHumans.com as well at Empower101 on Instagram and Twitter real quick our challenges uh study of course uh that's find something that resonates with you i've been using the libby app with the local library system there's also hoopla digital and there's also audible there's also uh, various ways you can study and learn things and between all the streaming things that are out there audio video and so on uh just do something that stimulates your mind and tunes you daily because we're like musical instruments that get out of tune so find something to study on a very regular basis and schedule it make sure okay in the morning even if you're listening to an audiobook on your way to work or or while you're making breakfast or doing the dishes or going for a walk Find ways to take care of yourself and study, stimulate your mind in a positive manner. And of course, the second challenge, make great moments. I found a way with my boys. We both picked, uh, I picked books with each of them individually the other day that's part of the study thing that we sit and we read together. And, uh, you know, my youngest son likes Legos and my uh, other son likes other things, video games and stuff. And just sitting and talking with them a lot of times is all it takes and some hugs and just time together. Uh, it's, it's a lot simpler. We don't all 
have to be, in spite of this uh, pandemic, and we all want to be traveling and doing all these various things, both for business and personal uh, needs, uh, simple things like just sitting on a bed and talking to each other can also be sometimes even more valuable than going, let's stand in line at Space Mountain at Disneyland or or lay on a beach, which, by the way, sounds fun. And, and on that note, by the way, we got snow here in Las Vegas this week for the first time in some years. It's not a lot of years, maybe a few years. I think it snowed in 2019 last time, but it only snows usually about once every few years and it doesn't stick around. But it did uh, kind of pile up a little bit overnight. So I took some pictures and stuff. And uh, so anyway, side note, but yeah, I would like to be on a beach somewhere. But I also enjoy the warmth, uh, so to speak, of sitting with my loved ones, including my boys, and uh, having quality time together. So you can find warmth and joy that way too. And our last uh, challenge, of course, along with study and make great moments is let's keep doing this podcast together. Uh, appreciate you, appreciate and flattered, of course, that you spend time with us. And I'm just excited to bring you this uh, interview with Nikita Thigpin. Um, so I'm not going to say anything more about it. Sometimes I can be long-winded. I love you and appreciate you. Reach out if needed. And here we go with our interview with Nikita Thigpin. Let's go. We are privileged here today to welcome the one and only Nikita Thigpin, who is a uh, balance and relationship advisor. You've got a lot of hats. We were just talking about this, Nikita. How are you doing today? I am absolutely magical, Phil. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I like that. When we got on, you said you're magical. Uh, why do we say magical, by the way? is I don't hear that a lot as an adjective of how we're doing. So what's magical? You talk about your grandbabies. That's pretty magical. <laughs> they are they are pure magic like all the way i say magical because i stand in the space that we create our own realities and i feel that's you know kind of what magic is you get to create whatever you want so i'm just creating my day to be even more powerful than it already started for me it's a few hours after you because you're pst time and i'm est yeah halfway through my day <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Well, I like that you're owning your your day and that you get to determine for the most part uh, how magical it turns out. Let's make it magical here with this podcast. Um, so you, you know, we talk about being a balanced and relationship advisor. I thought it was fascinating. Some of the things that I read about you too, that I thought, oh, this might be uh, some good stuff for our audience. Um but also along with that kind of broad hat, you're psychotherapist, you have trauma specialist experience, sexology, <laughs> relationship expert. Um, let's talk about your background and some of the things that, you know, brought you to this path of what you're doing now. Um, where would you like to start? I don't know how far back you want to go, but uh, what, what is kind of, what are the main points on your path that uh, led you this direction? <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. And of course, like most of the listeners that are tuning in, we're complex and very layered beings, right? Like there's no direct path to who we are. Right. But I went from being a clinician that worked in hospitals and through court systems to stepping into entrepreneurship. So if you want to start there, that's, yeah, that's always that's... a good place. That was a huge pivot for me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, and, and, so you talked about also that you're from um, you grew up in Philly, right? I mean, big city girl, mm -hmm. city of brotherly love, which by the way, I've talked yeah. to a lot of people lately from Philly in various capacities in business. And it's like, I've always wanted to visit the city. Um, I don't want to get off track. What's it like growing up in Philly? You've probably seen all the stuff, all the, you know, the Liberty Bell and <laughs> All, <laughs> yeah. all the stuff that you guys get excited over and we just like walk by and here and i am in vegas and people get excited over a while 
Yeah, people get excited over all the stuff here in Vegas, and we just take it for granted here too. But because I live here, but anyway, right? Yeah, like naked guitar guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the first thing I thought of Vegas was naked guitar guy. Yeah. Um, no, so Philly for me, born born and raised. I've literally lived in every part. Uh, the first half of my life, at you know, from a youth perspective, up to about twelve years old, I lived in Mount Airy, which is kind of a a, a pseudo suburb of sorts from the city. And then I moved with my biological mother into South Philly, which is definitely much more um, where the rumbles happen. <laughs> that mm. makes sense where you yeah. you get your edge from living in South Philly. And I was young parents. My husband and I have been together since we were 17 and it's been blessed and beautiful um, almost 30 years now. Um, but of course that meant that we would not have any money for the first part of our adult life and yeah. have to move in whatever part of the city we could afford. So we've literally lived in every part of Philadelphia that you can imagine. Um, So I've seen everything from, you know, city glitz and glamour and bling and all the poshness down to, you know, be mindful where you park your car, where you're, you know, stepping out on the street, where you can go and and come um, because, you know, you're not going to be safe. We've lived everywhere. So it's, you know, it's dynamic and layered and it definitely added to my personality. I'm a risk taker, but I'm not reckless. And I contribute much of that to being born and raised in Philadelphia. Okay. Okay. Well, that's, that's some good uh, background because it's varied. I mean, it's in Philly, but you're, you sound like you're all over the map quite literally. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, that's cool. Um, Okay. And, and so you talk about being a clinician, what, what led you then from there down these paths. I mean, it's obviously you're in a place where you want to empower people, individuals. Mm-hmm. Of course, we like the word empower around here at the Empower Humans podcast. But uh, was was there some trigger point, some event? Sometimes people have like a, you, to use your word magical, a magical event that takes place in their life that says you need to go down this path or, you know, pivot to turn this corner. Um, is there anything like that in your, <laughs> yeah. in your experience? Definitely. Honestly, I had layers of that. So we, you know, before I was bold enough and brave enough to jump into the ocean of entrepreneurship, I had been being pulled forth and I just couldn't identify like what was going on. I was very, very good at what I did as a clinical social worker and a trauma specialist, which is the roots of who I am. That was you know, almost 20 years in the making before I jumped into entrepreneurship, um, all things trauma, honestly, from kids to adults and, and everything that that was kind of entangled with, which led me through sexology, because obviously trauma impacts people's sexual relationships and their emotional intimacy and all the layers kind of mm-hmm. forth. But while I was still a clinician, um, I got into a space where I honestly felt burned out. I was working at a hospital, 12-hour shifts. Um, I thought the transition I needed was to be more administrative and less kind of direct on the floor. Uh, That was not a successful transition. I left there to kind of go into the court systems a lot deeper as director of outcomes and behavioral health for um, a child advocacy company that was based in Philadelphia. I thought it would be a challenge and it wasn't. So I kind of set myself up for like, this will be my next big challenge. And I felt like in the first two months, I could do it with my eyes closed. And that didn't feel good. I know some people would probably like a job that they could do with their eyes closed. Mm -hmm. I have always gone after like the next level of stretching of myself. Yeah. Part of that, um, to be quite transparent, Phil, is because my addiction growing up wasn't drugs or promiscuity or, you know, emotional eating. My addiction was stress. 
So I would constantly put myself in these uh, positions, have to do three 20 page papers, you know, whatever it was, be full time in grad school while nursing a baby, while doing the clinicals, while working three jobs. Like I would do all of that because for me, the endorphin rush that that would create was intoxicating, quite honestly. So uh, moving from this space of being really good at something and not being challenged uh, was like a slow suffocation. Um, it's not good to put yourself in a space where you are so stressed that you have a, a intoxicating high from it. I'm not recommending that either. Yeah. Uh, but I was really looking for not only a medium for myself that would allow me to create my own balance, but also I needed to be more impactful. Like I didn't want to just w- work with people to, I kind of liken therapy to helping you get your legs up under you and get off the floor to get into a space where you could survive whatever the circumstances, whatever it is, the divorce, the breakup, you know, the grieving of a, of a parent or a child, whatever it is for you that you feel has kind of wiped your legs from under you. A lot of um, therapy and it's, and it's kind of root is to help you process the dysfunction to get to the root of it is to really get you in survival mode. But I want it more for myself, quite honestly. I want it to do more than just survive. I wanted to, I didn't have the terminology at the time, but now we're all using it. I wanted to thrive. Um, and I knew that that was something that I could do for other people if I didn't just kind of hold myself bound to this expectation that being a clinician was my utopia. Like it was my everything. Like I kind of limited myself. So I knew there was something else more for me to do. I just honestly didn't know what. So the magical thing that happened for me as an intercessor, a prayer warrior, as a woman of God, is I prayed. I asked like diligently and it didn't come to me in the first day, month, or even the year. It probably was a couple of years of asking, Mm -hmm. what do you want me to do? (laughs) What do you want? What am I here for? (laughs) Because I know it's more than all of the pats on the back that come from doing the quote unquote good things in the world. And I got a download Um, July 11th of 2009. I got a download in my spirit. I could literally see the vision of the layers of this kind of self-care institute, if you will. I didn't have like actual name for it, but the layers of what I could see were very vivid. It was a very out of body experience um, and it was exciting and thrilling and overwhelming because at the time I was just a clinical social worker, right? Like I'm rooted in the system and the infrastructure of all that's around me. And I had zero idea of how to go from doing that, working in systems, picking up a call, calling upstairs and saying, hey, John, I need you to do this. Hey, Phil, I need you to do this for, you know, for our mutual clients or patients Mm -hmm. to moving into this space where I was going to create and own this huge layered global institute that kind of downloaded into my spirit of what I would do. Um, So in true Nikita fashion, quite honestly, Phil, I mucked it up. Um, I was super scared of the possibility of, of taking on something so big because the vision was so massive, um, that I sat on it for a little bit being perfect Patty, trying to create like the tightest strategic plan around it. Um, and I launched, it took me a couple of years to get my muster, but I launched, um, with a staffing agency that also had a division for professional development, um, professional development and training. And my theory around that is as a social worker, as a clinician, I'm a resource for people. People come to me all the time when they need anything. Um, and the number one reason that families don't stay together is rooted in some kind of financial conflict. So if I can make sure that everyone is secure and 
financially stable and has skills that they're proud of, then we can limit how many families are damaged. And obviously we can train them up through our professional development arm to kind of help them grow in their career or whatever their trajectory is. Um, great plan, amazing 68 page business plan, Wharton approved, stamped all that from the consultants that we you know, brought on to look at it. And it was the most phenomenal priceless muck up that we could have done because I wasn't even interested in staffing. Um, but I'm a researcher, I'm a nerd, I'm committed. So I did all the things. I didn't know that it was such a gated community in staffing. I didn't know, like there were so many layers of learning. Um, it's male dominated. It's an all boys club, like you name it. It's, you know, older white men. I'm a younger black woman. There was all kinds of layers that I just didn't understand. In addition to the fact that outside of it being a magnificent challenge, there was, it was not utilizing my gift. So there was a lot of layers in that, um, that we learned myself and my husband learned in the beginning, we lost a hundred thousand dollars in the first six months of business, all of our savings bootstrapped entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, I'm sure you'll understand as a parent, you know, we were really, really good savers because we wanted something for our, our kids in our future. So we had invested a lot of that into this business thinking it would be all the things which it would eventually become. But my path was to fall hard and be humbled before I could get up and really embrace that that wasn't my space. And I had to recognize I was already equipped to do what I was here to do instead of me looking for something outside of myself. So that was yeah. kind of the, the jump in. That's a, that's a lot there. Wow. That's uh, quite the story too. I mean, said, I mean, there's some chapters to the story, obviously. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there's, there's a lot of places <laughs> that we need to go here uh, to, to address uh, some of this. You said July 11th, 09 was this big download. Is that right? 7-Eleven? Yeah. Oh. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then, um, and that's interesting because I've heard those stories too. We'll get back. We might get back to that. I'm not sure if we will, <laughs> if we will but um, I've heard those stories, but I want to start with the trauma experience uh if you don't mind because that's yeah, also of course. started because um you know i personally you know different people individually have dealt with and or seen amongst loved ones family friends and so on some versions of trauma that have taken place but when you're in that setting where you deal with that on a regular basis I have a whole bunch of questions but we're not gonna probably get into all of them it's just what do you see as part of the human we don't need to get into the experience I mean, people can imagine what trauma is that could be i'm sure every everything mm -hmm. from physical abuse of a spouse boyfriend kind of thing child abuse sexual mm -hmm. abuse rape all that. i mean this is what we're talking about right when it comes to trauma mm -hmm. okay and and yes. what happens in the aftermath with human beings in this in this trauma i mean we talk about people going into shock and all these things is there is there some insight that you gained just from experiencing all these people and their trauma, uh, if you don't mind me asking, I'm putting you on the spot with kind of an obscure question here. Is there anything yeah, no, about the human spirit? Ask, literally, yeah, absolutely. Ask me anything, Phil, truly. Okay. Um, so, of course, it ranges, right? <laughs> like, like our reactions range. So there are people who experience a trauma and in the moment they completely, you know, some people see it as shock, but they get they put a protective guard. So they have a out of body experience where they're no longer present in the moment of when the damage uh, is happening, where the destruction is occurring. Um, that's why for some very rare individuals, they disassociate 
they literally have an out-of-body experience that's not just for a moment, like a kind of a daydream or a download like I receive. They have an out-of-body experience that's protective and that feels really comfortable and safe that they don't always come back together. And that's where we see split personalities and other things. So it's rare that it goes yeah. all the way kind of to the extreme of the right, if you will. Um, but there are people who kind of come in the middle well, they'll have an extreme situation happening where they feel violated, we'll say that, and that could apply to any type of violation. Um, even a visceral one where they were witness to a violation of, of a loved one, like say their parent or the PTSD that comes from being in the military and perhaps you witness your soldier, your brethren's being harmed or coming back to the tent, you know, missing a limb, right? Like the witnessing of that yeah. can be embodied and experienced and you can still have the same reaction. Um, it's called vicarious trauma that you would have if it had physically happened to you when you witness it, depending on how it's embodied in your experience. So some people disassociate and kind of pull away just for the moment, some people pull away and create uh, these other personalities within them that are protective, that show up, you know, to hide them. And they, that other dominant personality becomes stronger, is now the, the one that's vocal or aggressive, or even the one that's quiet to protect. Maybe they are normally really vocal, but the, the vocality of their boisterousness would actually get them into more harm and more right. danger. Mm. And then, of course, there's, there's people who just hold everything in um, and suppress it all. Like if you could imagine, you know, kneading dough and you're like pounding, pounding, pounding it down to make it as malleable as, as possible when you think about baker's dough. Some people do that with all of their emotions and feelings. So they'll show up with a smile minutes after the, the moment happened, days and years after, always smiling, always pleasant, always nice. Meanwhile, that dough is rising on the inside of them. It's just because they needed it down, right? Like with the, their thoughts of, mm -hmm. uh, don't think don't think about it, just keep going. Don't think about it, just keep going. You know, like kind of mantras that maybe they were raised on. Like, we don't have time for that, Phil. Get up, be stronger. Like, let's go it. Men don't cry. You know, whatever it is that, you know, someone might've been raised on, they'll pull up these mantras to protect themselves. And that dough is rising in the meantime. And then it explodes on some, or implodes, if you will, on some level when they're trying to do something that they're really excited about. The excitement that they're having and the nervousness that kind of comes with that excitement is now interpreted as fear. So you'll see, and you probably have interviewed people who have shared similar stories where they had a fantastic opportunity in front of them mm -hmm. and they were just frozen. They, wow. they just didn't understand why they were, you know, literally sabotaging their own success. And it's typically because something rolls up and it was just too uncontrollable because they had been suppressing it for so long. Wow. That is some really uh, intense and interesting, you know, set of insights right there. And and it's you know it's true for any of us who've lived any length of time and <laughs> seen how trauma unfolds. And people experience different things. And I will tell you, I have a very close friend who was a an EMT for a while, and uh, mm -hmm. and acted like you know this doesn't affect me. But as an EMT, as you might imagine, you're experiencing all kinds of things. He delivered a baby at one point in a parking lot. He, you know, car accidents galore and deaths and suicides and just awful things. Most of, most of the time, you're not delivering babies every day where you have that. But right. after some years of this and then coinciding with the planets aligning of some, uh, some other friends uh, passing away, uh, 
in various ways in a very short period of time. All this, and I would venture guess it was suppression that took place. You know, it's not my place to diagnose anything or anybody, but we've had lengthy mm-hmm. conversations about this. All of a sudden, it just came to the surface. And this friend tells me that he was uh, crying virtually every day uh, for like a month. Mm-hmm. And all these things just came out. And it's, it, I don't know, even there's not even a question there. It's just this, it's really interesting to see how human beings are with things and our capacity. Yeah. And I want to talk about capacity a little bit, but our capacity to uh, survive in whatever way, like do whatever it takes to survive. And people do it in different ways. We, some of us, you know, we all have some very basic common needs as far as food, clothing, shelter, and all that kind of stuff. But um, anyway, I I wanted to point that out because I, that's one experience for my world sort of, of a very close friend. Um, But so from the trauma experience and now, you know, and you use the word balance, you have this, uh, is it called ThigPro Balance and Relationship Management Institute? Yes. <laughs> okay. I want to make sure that I get it right because I, I know it's a you know, you somewhat did. You lengthy said it perfect. Name. Oh, cool. Good, good. Gold medal <laughs> for me today. Uh, and so you use the word balance. Where, where did you go from mm-hmm. this trauma uh, to get to this place? Because also you do psychotherapy and things. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I love the word balance. I've saying in the podcast for a long time, the universe demands balance. I mean, you look at how black holes work and all mm-hmm. these things. The universe demands balance. Why is balance such an integral part? It's basically the first word after ThigPro in the title of your your institute here. <laughs> Let's talk about balance and then yeah. how you – go ahead. I know this is a mouthful question. Yeah, no, I love it. Um, and ThigPro is kind of a spinoff of my last name, which is ThigPen, right? Yes. So our, our legal first name was ThigPen's Professionals, but no one could say our name. So they just started calling us TP and ThigPro. And we thought TP might look like a cultural pro- appropriation because, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not Native American. So we decided to go with ThigPro. So that's where that came from <laughs> for the balance and relationship management part of it. I'm like, oh, well, they can say ThigPro. So we'll we'll rock with it. Um Balance is literally, uh, for me, I've defined it as a formula. If you think of it as a fraction, there's your truth. So there's a T for your truth Mm -hmm. over top of B for your boundaries. So if you're admitting the truth of what you really want and what you need in your life to feel that you've been impactful and transformational or created a ripple in the universe, you know, whatever your ultimate legacy goal is for yourself. I'm not just talking about for your kids or your kids' kids, if that's part of the trajectory of what you want to create, because not everyone wants to have children. Not everyone is meant to be a parent, right? Um, Some people have other aspirations. I want to be very clear about that for those that are listening and feeling like, oh, well, you know, I don't have any kids. So does that mean I can't create a legacy? Nope. Your legacy is what you pour out into this universe while you are breathing, while you are here and everything that continues after you're gone, regardless of whether or not you're able to quote unquote, hand it down to someone else to carry it because they have their own legacies to create. So your truth, admitting what you really want and what you need over the boundaries that you create to achieve that truth as a reality. So that's what balance is. So I know a lot of people get into like, there's no such thing. And I'm sure Phil, you've heard this too. Like there's no such thing as balance. It's, it's integration, it's harmony, um, it's alignment. It is all those things. But if I were to, you know, fall out of this chair right now, I don't say I'm not integrated. (laughs) 
or I'm not in harmony, I say, well, dad, going it, I lost my balance, right? Like some, something's going on. So it's yeah. not a, a space where you want to get hung up into the semantics of a word and whether that really applies to you for work-life balance or not. And when you kind of put it into like a combination statement like that, the end of the day, you could have 30 things on your plate today or two things on your plate today. If, if all of those things are connected to you living your truth and you have boundaries that you've created to achieve it, you feel completely imbalanced. You don't feel overwhelmed. And we all have life happening, right? Like there's things that are, you know, storms that are happening outside of our house, snowstorms and such that we can't control. But with all of that said, if we can at least keep perspective of what's on our plate connected to the truth that we're trying to achieve. So let me give a a real kind of tangible example. If I say, the truth is I'm a mogul in the making. That's my truth. That's, that's who I am. Like if this is, you know, this isn't necessarily my claim, but let's just say that this is my truth, hypothetical sake. Mm-hmm. Then it's like, okay, Nikita, well, what boundaries are you creating to make that truth a reality? Well, one of the boundaries I have to create is in my, there's five boundary zones and one of them is faith. For me to be a mogul in the making, the kind of mogul I want to be, one that has integrity and is about compassion and em- empathy and, you know, growing other people besides myself and empowering other people besides myself. If that's really the kind of mogul that I want to be, then I have to look at boundaries I have around my faith. What am I doing to make space for me fueling my faith? Right. Like for me, that's crucial for me. That may not be crucial for someone else unless your faith is like, you know, connected to just love. Like your faith is love. You want to make time for love. You can't walk around saying you're Mr. or Mrs. Love doctor if you're not actually loving anyone, including yourself. So making sure that I have that space. So if someone calls me on a Sunday, uh, which for me is a Sabbath day. If you call me on a Sunday and say, oh, you know, Nikita, I really want to go to this party. I want to do this. Can you come with? I have to be very mindful. Have I had my time for my devotionals and my prayer warrior time and my intercessor time? Because if I haven't, then I'm out of alignment. And that's where the alignment comes in with what I said that I wanted to do. Something a little bit more tangible is around energy management, because you talked about this a little bit earlier. And I know we'll probably go into it deeper, but another boundary zones is your energy management capacity. This is where people are adding to you and detracting from you because we all have people, places, and patterns that add to us and some that detract from us. So if my friend, I'm just going to say a regular friend, not necessarily your BFF, but if your friend calls you and says, hey, Phil, And the next three weeks, we're doing this big gender reveal party for Sue. And it's going to be a five hour Zoom (laughs) date on Wednesday from 12 to five in the afternoon. I know it's in the middle of your day, but we want everyone there. And, you know, they make it all grand and all that. Well, you have to weigh if that's in alignment with your mogul in the making idea, because maybe it's easier for you to send them a gift. Like, here's a gift that she could open at the gender reveal and I'll try to do something with them later at a, at a different time. But I have these projects and these deadlines that I really need to get to because they are in alignment with my truth of becoming a mogul. So it really is about creating these lines to hold you accountable to where you said you really want to go. This also includes breaking expectations, including the private expectations that you've had for yourself. So if you know I'm well over 40, 
if my 20 year old self had different expectations of where I would be at 40. If I'm holding myself to those expectations, I'm linked to this tether of shame and guilt, maybe resentment and even regret that's actually slowing me down from being able to achieve all the possibilities because I'm constantly comparing where I'm not versus where I said I would be instead of letting go those expectations that actually aren't serving me anymore. And that goes for expectations that other people might have of me, right? So that's really what balance is, is your truth over the boundaries that you create to achieve that truth. Mm. Yeah. And by the way, if we were to dig in, there's a ton of depth in all of that. Like when you talk about your expectations mm-hmm. and and it's almost like there needs to be a balance with a little bit of submission to what life and the universe dishes out to you as well. Yes. You could be 18 years old and say, oh, yeah, I'm going to be a movie star or a billionaire or whatever <laughs> by the age of 30 or 40 or, what, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it is. It's funny, by the way, high schoolers, I saw a study that they said, they asked them, how much do you think your income is going to be? And the average high schooler's income was going to be $300,000. And this was some years ago when 300000 was worth more than it is even now. And But we know statistically, in reality, that's just not the case. Some of them will mm-hmm. probably make some of that income, but it won't be, it won't be most of them by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> um, so it's inter- expectation is an interesting topic. And then we talk about balance. I like your fraction that you um, created. And, and then boundaries. You know, as you're talking about boundaries, I'm thinking about like a house. I'm thinking about like the house I grew up in. We had a fence. We were in a cul-de-sac on the corner. There was a fence and uh, this is in Albuquerque. And then, uh, you know, as most houses go, there's walls and there's bedrooms, there's a kitchen, there's uh, all these different things with different functions. And I think about, I just started thinking about that in terms of our lives, kind of an analogy. Um, and, you know, the other day I listened to Tony Robbins do, he's been doing these events <laughs> and he's trying to, I guess, bring people into his, his unleash the power within or something. So he's doing some free, you know, two hour trainings daily or something. Anyway, this, you talked about relationships, men and women think differently where men kind of compartmentalize things. And so I think about, that's probably why I'm thinking about a house with all the walls <laughs> <laughs> and, and women it's, there's all this interconnect, even if there's walls, it's all interconnected. Um, but let's talk deeper about the work-life balance topic because it's it's something that's been addressed in so many different ways over the years. And then some people say, oh, you don't have your business life and your family life or your personal life. It's all just your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have to figure out what you want with your life because you, whatever you do, business, family, whatever with your time is uh, it's all part of your 24 hours in the day. And that's the bigger picture. Um what 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 more depth do we have as far as the work life balance topic, and uh, and then I know one of the things you talk about too is uh, is uh, cap- you know when you get to capacity, there's some things you can do to make s- space for the things that matter as well. Yeah. Um, what are your insights on those topics? Again, I'm long winded here. My apologies. <laughs> no, I love it. I I actually am pretty verbal myself. So <laughs> yeah. We'll make for hours. Right. We'll make a really good pair for anyone who loves like deeper conversation. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I I actually, I can tie this into your compartmentalization of like thinking of the boundaries of a house. 
right? Um, and the fence and all the things, because something that extends in when you think about work-life balance, or I like to say work-life and love, because love, regardless of whether or not you're in partnership with someone, should be a huge part of how you stay in balance, how you create that truth for yourself, because you want to love something bigger than yourself, someone outside of yourself, right? But including yourself. Mm-hmm. One of the things when you think about like fences and and gates and garages and kind of the lines of the lawn and all of that, go a little bit further in your visualization and look at the street corner. There's usually some kind of road sign, some stop sign, some light, right? Like a, a, a street light, a traffic light, something that gives you a signal of what to do. And a lot of this is connected to the, the problems and the pain points that we're willing to acknowledge versus all the stuff that we're not. So a lot of people that come into, like my company is a global personal development company. And when people come in, they typically want to pick on the things that feel really comfortable that any passer buyer would have noticed. Like, oh, hey, Nikita, I'm just having a time management issue. That's, you know, that's the traffic light because that's a safe thing to say. Like, oh, I'm just having some time management because of all the influx of, I don't know, everyone's on Zoom now. So since we're not driving anywhere, I find myself doing 12 meetings from my desk and not taking breaks. So they'll pick something safe. What they're less likely to do is, I call those the kind of pebble problems, like the pebbles on the street, the really small, short signs. What they're less likely to do until we get into some deeper work and unthread, the things that are really kind of, quote unquote, knocking them off their work-life balance, it's what they're really, if you look at them, I'm, I'm drawing a visual right now and you can't see me, but <laughs> the okay. boulder, like the boulder problems, those boulder issues, like those big, massive, almost, you know, physically immovable issues that are buried inside that are really the biggest thing that we need to get to. Not so much the pebble problems that they're feeling safe enough to, you know, point out the street shine and the traffic, sh- traffic light, whatever the case is of their their life or work or relationship issues. Those are the things that are tethered to those early scripts. Many of those scripts, most in fact, weren't even created by them. And I know you had Ty uh, Goodman on your show a while back. I love Ty, (laughs) by the way, she's fantastic from the personal development school. She's amazing. And she talks a a lot about attachment theory and all the layers that um, align with that. So obviously we connect really deeply there. It's, rooted in your attachment to what was downloaded to you before you could even speak. So those early scripts are given to you between your mother being in her third trimester pregnant with you, if she was able to carry full term or close to full term, Mm -hmm. up until you were about seven, somewhere between seven and nine years old. The science, the journals kind of change between seven and nine years old. All those scripts were given to you from your environment from your parents or caregivers, your siblings, the neighbors, the coaches, if you went to soccer club or you know any of those things, all those people and places that were saying things to you and around you, they became scripts that would eventually become your narrative if they got imprinted deeper. So a lot of the bolder issues that people have are literally stacked, calcified, chaos of feeling unworthy, unheard, unseen, not validated, not appreciated, not desired, and so many other layers for that. Those are kind of like the top ones. They were stacked and calcified over with the experience that we would, you know, walk into an imprint based on our actions and inactions as we were growing up into 
a, you know, a space where we can make choices. For some children that's around 12 years old, they start to have a little bit more independence, assuming they're in a healthy family, they start to have a little bit more independence with what they could do. They might be able to get their, make their own cereal or, you know, contribute to cleaning some kind of way. They have chores that they now own. They might be able to go to a friend's house for a sleepover and not necessarily have to take all the siblings with them, you know, things like that. And they started to make their own decisions or indecisions, right? Doing or not doing things that now imprinted those early scripts that were given to them as truth and they became their future narrative. So an example, a real example of this would be if a three-year-old were um, in a very wealthy family, you know, wealthy enough, we'll say that, like all, all their basic needs were taken care of to the point where they even had nannies. So they grow up thinking, well, I don't have a trauma story, Nikita. I don't, I don't have any of that. Nothing happened to me. There was no intimate partner violence. There was no sexual abuse. There was none of the kind of quote unquote normal traumatic things that happened. But that three-year-old, and this is a, a real case study, three-year-old um, is pretty much raised by the nanny who's loving and attentive and nurturing. And the parents give every single thing that they need. There, there are no wants. However, the three-year-old gets really sick, three, three and a half years old, really sick with like a flu, upset, gets out of bed, goes into the parents' room for some nurturing and support. And the parents say, oh no, Johnny, get out of here. And they call the nanny to help, to help that child to get settled back in the bed. That three-year-old interpreted that moment very traumatically as I'm not wanted, I'm not enough, no one cares about me, I'm a burden, I bother, right? They've interpreted, without the words, they've interpreted this feeling that's locked them into this space. So as they get older and other, you know, environmental things are downloaded into them from people and places around them, maybe even the shows there are a lot to watch, which watch, which is why you got to be really careful, like what's around your kids, what do they listen to without you debriefing them and helping them separate what's reality or someone else's reality versus them taking it on and thinking it's their reality, you know, for themselves. So debriefing is essential, but that child grows up. And every relationship, the sisterships, the brotherships, the lovers that they take on when they grow up and are of consenting adult age, you know, all the things, they take Mm -hmm. on this, I'm a burden. So now I have to overcompensate. I have to people please. I have to show up. I have to overgive. I have to prove to them that I'm worthy. And they're constantly battling this fear of rejection. And it shows up in their work, their career, their choices, right? Like all the things. And now they're a, you know, 40 some year old person who's trying to figure out why they're having such a difficult time separating themselves from being stuck in something that's working pretty well, but not sufficient because they don't want to let go and start over because they worked so hard to have this one thing in their life not be rejected, even though they're not happy with it anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that does. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's interesting the way, again, going back to that survival thing, it happens in multiple layers, whether it's some traumatic, p- potentially life-threatening experience or or just little things about how we react and our emotions and anxieties about life, uh, just the ways that we compensate and do these different things. And so it's interesting what you explain. And uh, it occurs to me too, we talk about the boundaries aspect, like um, going back to the house thing, not to be self-serving with my analogy, but no, I love it. <laughs> it made me think about, you know, my mom had a house separately in another place that was also on a corner, not in a cul-de-sac, but um, this house did not have a fence, oddly enough. 
And what she started to notice is these kids walking home from school were walking across the yard. Mm. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. the long story short, we could talk for, probably for hours about this if we really wanted to, because you and I can get long winded, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the long story short is that um, it, it, it occurred to me that it's important to make your boundaries known to make them yes. clear because the fence wasn't there as a boundary. So, you know, most kids aren't going to, Oh, I'm going to go cut across this yard. So I'm going to climb the fence. No, they're not. They're going to continue around this on the sidewalk. And ultimately she did put in a fence by the way. And mm-hmm. so it's never too late. Also, and it's important to, to set some boundaries. Um, I just thought that was an interesting little uh, tidbit in terms of what we're talking about here. And That's powerful. Do you mind if I take that a little further? Please take it further. Go ahead. Yeah, I love. First of all, I love your visual, so don't hold back. Um, <laughs> I'm very okay. visual as well. Yeah. Um, I love the the framing of there not being a clear, understood boundary. So innocently, the kids not knowing that that wasn't okay just kind of crossed it. They crossed the invisible boundary that maybe frustrated your mom, right? Like growing up like my grass is getting treaded on, right? Like the divots and the flowers, like all the things that might've been happening or are being ruined. We do that in our relationships when we feel guilty about putting up a boundary because we're afraid someone can't handle it. This comes up all the time. I literally just uh, did a presentation last night Um, at the University of Washington School of Entrepreneurship. And one of the themes that were coming up from the entrepreneurial students was, you know, I feel guilty putting up boundaries with my family. You know, even though I'm in school, because, right, we have families that don't respect entrepreneurship, like, oh, when is this going to pass? You know, I just need you to get a a nine to five and and be anchored and call it a day. So we have all kind of layers of of why that those boundaries need to be put up or they're still looking at you as the the 12 to 15 year old and not respecting your 30 or 35 or 40. Now they're just kind of holding you in the space that makes them comfortable. Mm -hmm. We train people how to teach us the same way they trained uh, train us how to react to them. Yeah. If, if I have a, a cousin that's constantly texting me all day when I'm working on projects and doing work and you know out here trying to have my piece of save the world moment, right? Like all the things. Mm-hmm. And they're like, hey cousin, do you ever get those texts filled where someone just says hi? Mm-hmm, hey. Sure. And that's hey. it. They, they don't say anything else. They're just like, hey. And it's like, dude, what do you want? Like, can you give a little bit more context so I know how urgent this is for me to respond? Yeah. But, but when, <laughs> right? But if they're doing that and you're constantly responding, even though it might bother you, even though you might have even said, like, hey, next time, just give me a little plug of, you know, what's going on with you because I'll be able to get back with you a little sooner or figure out when. If you don't make it really clear that this isn't just a nice to have, this is a, I need to have moment with them, this boundary, they're going to do it again tomorrow, right? When you're in the middle of an audit or another big project or something wild has happened in your life. Like we're training people, you know, to see the boundary or not see, but we're doing it based on our comfortability of being accepted or potentially fear of being rejected by them. Mm. Yeah. That's that's a great analogy. And I like the the extension of the corner house without a fence topic. Mm-hmm. It's a, yeah, that's a great point. And and by the way, we don't need to be scared. Sometimes there's these, uh, I don't know, social norms, perhaps, or at least perceived social norms that, oh, okay, now a conversation started. I can't stop it. You could step in and say, okay, I see this is something serious. I want to dedicate t- some time to you. I'm not in a position to do that right now. Let's do it at seven o'clock or, or you know, whatever it is. Well said. And mm-hmm. it, and you can hear in those words that there's there's a respectful tone, but it's also a firm tone, and it's also 
uh, it's also honoring where they're coming from, whatever it is, um, to where, and this applies probably even more so in intimate relationships. And let's talk more about that. Cause I know yes. that's a lot of what you do related to yeah. being, you know, the term sexology sounds so, uh, fantastical to use your word magical. <laughs> uh, but there's a lot to this as to what we are and, and our well-being as people and our needs and the depths of our brains and things um, and being a relationship expert like you are. I know there's something, you know, you have a like a top five ways to deepen a connection with, with your partner, your lover. Um, do you want to talk about that first? And then we can, you know, wherever you want to go with it, but that's my suggestion. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. And, you know, the reality is that emotional intimacy is the most important place to deepen anything for yeah. someone who's in a committed, consensual relationship. And I have to highlight that because I know everyone's listening is bold and brave enough to be in a space of consenting. But some people are hearing intimacy and thinking that that means they could you know, grab people and, and touch and do different things because that's not what we're about. So I want to be right careful and clarify that. With that said, um, catching someone in a really good space with great communication and alignment and the time that you're investing in them are all parts of like some of the five ways that we can definitely talk about. And I probably won't go super deep into it because it can get really juicy and <laughs> to mm -hmm. use your words, we'll be overly verbal in a few minutes if we yeah. do that. Yeah. Um, but a, a lot of the work that I do is helping, you know, power couples and married women entrepreneurs and a few brave men, because there are some men who are like, hey, me first, <laughs> will come along and they're really yeah. just ready to reconnect with themselves and their forever loves. They want to do that by amplifying the intimacy in their relationships. And they don't want to sacrifice that success that they've worked so hard to achieve because for many people it's been an either or which is why so many people have challenges with the kind of phenomena of work-life balance it's like mm -mm, when I'm working I'm working they, they you know he she they they know to leave me be right <laughs> like they get yeah. into this space and it doesn't always have to be like that will it absolutely when we're in the zone, if you have a major project, I mean, heck, you're interviewing me right now. So your person can't come and level on you while we're in the middle of the interview because yeah. you have to be focusing in the zone. But when we hang up, you might be able to give two minutes of teasing, right? And <laughs> level on them a little bit and go stroke a shoulder and go grab a hip and pull them close and just give them a kiss on their cheek and just say, I love you. Everything doesn't have to end in penetration. And in fact, emotional intimacy isn't about that. It's really about creating that deeper connection, which is all intimacy is. It's creating that deeper connection where you feel seen and heard and appreciated and validated and edified and desired. If you can do that, like no one is going anywhere. You are locked in for life in a good way. Yeah, that's great. And uh, I, th I think that's absolutely true. It's, I mean, clearly, and you've probably found this both before and after you started doing what you do, there's some differences between men and women, you know, not mm. the least of which are physical, but also uh, in the way we process the world, the way we approach the world, when it comes to relationships, um, men and women have some different tendencies, at least, and we're speaking generally, not individually. Um, do you want to shed any light on any of that? You know, I know, like I mentioned, Tony was talking about relationships the other day, Tony Robbins on his mm -hmm. little live training too, about, you know, men are very visual and compartmentalize and obviously men are tend to be uh, i shouldn't say 
no, I'm not going to say it. Men aren't more sexual, but men are very physical about things. But I think women are too, and but in their own way, but also there has to be a safety and an emotional connection. Do yeah. you want to shed more light on some of these differences between men and women? <laughs> and correct yeah. me about anything I just said. <laughs> no, you're not. You're, you're spot on, actually. Men do think in a more kind of fragmented, compartmentalized way in general. Now, there are lots of women that have strong masculine energy that can definitely get, get compartmentalized, right? In sure. the way that they think and the way that they process. Um, and actually, as a survival skill, many women will do that so they can multitask and manage the the emotional frequency of my, what might be happening where there's a sick kid in this room and the other kid is demanding more attention and the spouse is like, hey, you know, when's my me time? <laughs> like, when are we going to have some time? And then work is calling, you know, down the hall. Like, so women can definitely come up but men traditionally do it, you know, from a brain-based perspective, they traditionally do it uh, more organically without necessarily trying to develop that skill. They're kind of, you know, literally just born with it. And women are more holistic. We can see the big picture really easy and then do deductive reasoning from that and be deductive problem solver. So you could have a really big problem in front of a woman and a woman can pull it back into the smaller pieces say, okay, I can see where that's at. They can also walk into an empty building and see the whole place decorated already, right? Or designed. <laughs> like I know where everything is going and every single nook and cranny of this place and, you know, all the differences in shades. Yes. And, you know, on average, men would be like, what? Okay, like, I just want to make sure the foundation of this spot is good. And then we can go from there. Yeah. Um, so that is kind of like, he's absolutely correct in the kind of high level of it. But it does get deeper in terms of where our sensors are. For women, we, we want to feel safe in order to feel the belonging. Men's safety is a little bit different. They're, you know, physical safety is absolutely imperative. They need to be traditionally protectors and in that mold. And then they can think about what it looks like now to build and believe in relationship and kind of move into that. And for many men, it is physical. It's, you know, sex is medicine it's a release for them. Sex is not medicine for women. We love sex. Don't, don't get me wrong at all <laughs> with that. Right. Okay. But it's not medicinal for us. We, we use it as more of a, a, a topping off, like, you know, an icing on top of the cake that we already created based on the emotional connection that we have with someone, yeah. which is why it's, it can be really hard to disengage with someone that you were sexually intimate with in a physical way. Because it's like, hey, we I already had the whole cake and I got full. What do you mean that you don't want to continue in this relationship? Mm. Even if it is toxic and it's not viable, it's because we're still holding on to all the work that we just put into this, you know, with this emotional kind of cake building, if you will. I know that's a little bit of a weird analogy, but I'm sure you're right. Analogy, me. you know. <laughs> I mean, you talk about icing on the cake. I mean, it's true. I see I don't mean to cut you off. I just think that, you know, and a lot I've heard a lot of people say that for women's sexuality, I mean, the, the tradition mentally for people is well, sex happens at night, but yes, it happens other times in the day too. But it's like at the end of the mm -hmm. day, after a day of like you talked about pulling somebody in, hug you, I love you, quick things, here's a text, I'm thinking about you. Those are the things that it sounds like really add up, especially for women. Again, we're talking generally um, to where the sex becomes the icing on the on the cake, um, and and you know, sex obviously isn't everything. It, it's uh, it's probably a very important component 
But like you said, things can be a toxic relationship and most people can have great sex, <laughs> but yeah. it's, it's toxic. And sometimes it feeds into the sex energy even more because there's all this tension. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. um, there, it, what else did you want to say? I'm sorry, because I cut you off. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. You're, we're, we're vibing in the same, on the same frequency. No, you're a thousand percent right. And there's also on the other side, there's relationships where because of maybe a medical reason or an injury that there's not physical sex, but they have the deepest intimacy, right? Because mm-hmm. you don't, you know, sex, when you're, when both parties have components of their body that are working, that are safe, that don't hurt or won't harm each other because of it. You know, there are women who are allergic to their spouse's sperm. Like there's all kinds of things, right. That, that could wow. be happening to, to make it difficult. Um, and there's workarounds to that. Right. But there are mm. some things that aren't workable. If there was a physical injury to one or both parties where that's really difficult. It doesn't mean that they can't have a beautiful, passionate relationship. They just won't have the quote unquote traditional physical penetration that many other couples might have, but they can kiss and love. There's so many nerves going through all of our body, right? Behind our ear, our wrists, behind our knees. Like there's so many other places where erogenous zones that you can touch on that can be really helpful. But in order to even feel safe enough to be okay and not be stuck in the shame of not being able to do those quote unquote traditional physical intimate things, Mm -hmm. we have to have the emotional intimacy cup full all the way up. So I teach a lot around, you know, getting intimate with yourself. Like if you can't touch yourself and make yourself feel good, it's really difficult for you to ask your partner for how to love on you. And, and to really touch you, be with you, hug you, love you in the way you want. And I'm not talking about full-on masturbation. Like, yes, you can go all the way there. There's no judgment. There's no shame there. But I'm just talking about wanting to look at yourself in the mirror and feel valued and not stare at all your open pores or your flaws and being able to touch your arm and stroke yourself all the way up like light, like it's a feather and feel the tingle and feel guilt like feel good about it and not guilty that you shouldn't be having this feeling in private. You know, there are a lot of humans that are walking around feeling really guilty about good feelings because they don't, their relationship doesn't look like someone else's Mm. or they, they feel like the, the other person might look at them like they're dirty because they actually know what they want. There's a lot of those things happening because of those early scripts that were not created by you, but were imprinted by your actions and your inactions, including once you recognize that those narratives are no longer serving you, if you choose to still hold on to them, it does become your fault, your problem, Mm. right? Versus I know it happened and I want to get some help and get some support around it. Yeah. Yeah. And a big part when there are problems, big part of what even Tony, not to keep referencing that, but it's new in my mind recent, but he talks about ownership is so important because sometimes people don't want to own, even with like the topic of trauma, people suppress and people hide from it and stuff. Um, But it's, there's a lot of depth to what you're saying. And, uh, you know, it's important for men too. one of the things Tony did is he went around the room. It, well, it wasn't a room because the virus thing. It was like a right. live with people on a screen. And, and he said, how many of you women in the last 30 days have felt unsafe and tons mm-hmm. of hands went up on these screens. And then how many of you men and maybe one. Uh, and so 
it's it's very interesting and to me that it's important that we kind of see each other through each other's eyes a little bit too and to see the other person like Stephen Covey one of his habits was seek first to understand then to be understood Mm -hmm. and so it's really important that we try to understand each other and own our part and be humble I mean there's so many things about all this that we could just constantly reiterates just like this process of getting better as people and relationships is such a massive incentive uh, to do that because of the depth of what that is and does and does to us when it falls apart too. Cause I've been there and it's mm-hmm. uh, it's it, talk to me in closing here. Let's talk about being selfish. And I, as I understand, you have a book called selfish, yes. don't you? Yes, I do. <laughs> and you know, as you talk about loving on yourself, it's, it's, you know, I think about like the love languages, like if these are your love languages, like touch and words of affirmation, why not use those love languages on yourself? But talk to me about being selfish and why that's so important and can contribute so deeply to making your intimate relationship that much better. Absolutely. It's one of the first things that I honestly start working on, whether it's power couples or the individual human that I'm working with at the time, if they're not Mm -hmm. doing it, you know, as a couple is being intentionally selfish. Um, Part of it is, is descripting all of those patterns and beliefs around why selfishness is bad. Um, I always give people a little, I'm a nerd. So I give people a little bit of history, you know, somewhere between 1620 and 1693, based on the research there was a bishop who literally said selfish was bad and they got into the lexicon, right? And then, like, mm-hmm. that was it. It was a decision made and it became a bad thing. And all kinds of verbiage was put around that. If you go even deeper, it was really around wives coming to the bishop for prayer and for help with not wanting to be sexually intimate in a physical way with their husbands whenever they wanted. They wanted to have some voice in it. And the bishop said, well, you'll be selfish if you deny your husband. So you can understand why I have huge issues with the original definition of the word. Um, So I redefined it and reclaimed it. For me, selfishness is an intimate and personal gift to yourself to allow you space to create your joy. When you are selfish and you stop breastfeeding the world, and I mean everybody, your kids, your pets, your forever love, your your team members, your workers, when you stop just constantly pouring out of all of your pores and giving to everyone long enough so you can refuel and have space for your own personal transformation, healing from your trauma, letting go of toxic people and patterns, breaking free of all those expectations, yours and others, freeing your inner child, re-scripting your patterns. Like when you make space because you're being selfish, you now have more room to allow love and moving forward from whatever was binding you before. You have space for intentional victory. Like you now have space to create your balance and your joy. Like now you can actually say, hold hold up, back up, wait a minute. I thought the truth is I wanted to be a mogul in the making. Maybe my truth actually is that I wanna contribute to the world with books and knowledge. And yes, the money will flow and I'll be strategic about that because I have a duty and responsibility to myself and my family and money is a good tool to have. But I can look at this different. I've been going at this all the wrong way because I was held to these other expectations, these other things. You can't come to those clarifying epiphanistic aha moments if you don't slow down long enough to see where you can speed up. 
So being intentionally selfish gives you breathing room. It allows you to kind of break free of that shrink wrap that you were inside in that bubble of just being on the doer's will, do it, get it done, get it done, because the world is congratulating you for being stressed out and getting all the things done. But not all the world is coming to you when you're caught up in a hospital with an IV stuck in your arm because you're exhausted and you're burnt out. Yeah, I I can say enough about how amazing that is. And it's really important within boundaries. Um, you know, someone I look up to one time said that anytime relationships fall apart, it's because of selfishness. So I'm not trying to contradict you here. But I, mm-hmm. what, I, what I'm getting at, though, is selfish is very important. But just like anything, sex is important. Food is important. All up to certain limits. Like, you don't want to be selfish to the point of, okay, I'm going to go also get with 85 women because I'm just right. going to cheat on my spouse. Um, within certain boundaries that also maintain the other very important things in your life. And if you're taking care of yourself, and it's this, you know, it's a constant struggle. Nobody's alone. We're all dealing with, you know, striving each day. Nothing's perfect, but striving for the right, uh, you know, norms and ideals is is kind of what it's about. I know you got to run. I love talking to you. Really great insights. But, you know, people can look up your book, Selfish. Uh, you have this joy map method that we'll talk about next time. <laughs> but we got into, I'm sure, some components of that. And then, of course, your ThigPro yeah. Balance and Relationship Management Institute. People can look look for that and, and find you as well. Anything else you want to add in closing, Nikita? Yeah, I would just say if you need any information and want to kind of come in, come into the rabbit hole of all the goodness we have, go to thinkpro.com and you'll see that there's a calendar to get on my schedule or join us over in our certified selfish Facebook group. Because I mean, what else would I call it, right? <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Okay, cool. Thank you for joining us. And to our audience, uh, we're of course flattered and grateful that you spend time with us. And until next time, empower yourself, empower the world around you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Empower Humans. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review this podcast. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit EmpowerHumans.com. We'll catch you next time.